All right, and, and along those lines, open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 10. We'll be um, really looking at verses 9 through 17 uh, tonight. So there's, and this will be our only sermon in Romans chapter 10. So I'd encourage you to kind of read the whole chapter and get familiar with the whole thing, um, you know, this week. But really just kind of focusing on the central point of, of chapter 10 and where it kind of falls in the flow of Paul's epistle. You know, from beginning to end, there's, there's one logical chain of thought that the Apostle Paul is, is working through here in this letter. And so I think this will be our main kind of point tonight. So previously, uh, we've been particularly looking at, um, in chapters 8 and 9, this idea that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That God in His sovereignty has foreordained everything that comes to pass, that He works all things together for the good of those who are called by him according to his purpose. And then we said that that, that includes the salvation of individuals. That God uh, sovereignly and unconditionally elects those whom he would save. Uh, we were talking about topics like predestination and unconditional election. And if you uh, kind of join us for the first time tonight or you haven't been here regularly, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those sermons because I'm going to be kind of building off of that foundation. And so there are three in particular that I encourage you to look up. Um, and if you, you can find the, all the sermons on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, um, they're on there. And there's, there's one from early in Romans chapter 8 called, Can You Please God? There's one from later in Romans chapter 8 called, The Golden Chain of Redemption. And then the last time we were together, we talked about the potter's prerogative. So if you look at those three sermons, you'll kind of get the backstory, the foundation that we're kind of building on tonight. Uh, but you'll still be able to track with us, hopefully. I'll try to make sure that, um, to bring you up to speed as we go along. And so if we've talked about this sovereign election of God, that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, even the salvation of individuals. And then you hear all this and you may be beginning to wonder if that, if that is true, then what is the point of evangelism? What's the point of preaching? And what if I want to be saved, but I'm not one of those chosen before the foundation of the earth? And those are important questions that, that we will address in tonight's sermon. And so I'll go ahead and give you the sort of too long, didn't read version right now. And, and the answer is this, that God ordains the end and also the means to that end. So keep that in mind as we read the text together. So as we honor God's word, let's stand together. I'll start reading in chapter, um, excuse me, in verse 9. God's word says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is God's word. Let us pray. God, as we come to your word tonight, we ask that you would give us faith to hear it, that we would receive it and that we would believe it as you enable us by your spirit. We ask for those eyes to see and ears to hear that you would be glorified in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So the title uh, of tonight's sermon is Calling Called Callers. Calling Called Callers. Hopefully you'll understand that title by the time that we're done tonight. And if you, if you don't, just forget that title ever happened, okay? <laughs> but we're calling called callers tonight. And really two main points. The first verses 9 through 13, looking at all who call. And then verses 14 through 17, calling the called. This is where we're going. So uh, starting at the beginning, all who call. Um, like I said, uh, sort of setting this up, <coughs> we have this promise in Scripture that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul is, is bringing this promise to the forefront in light of all of his discussion on God's sovereignty. Right? That God sovereignly chooses those whom he would save. He has mercy on those whom he would have some mercy, right? We saw that in Romans chapter 9. And he wants to demonstrate to us that that is not um, inconsistent or contradictory to the idea that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so... Um, the first thing we want to look at is this, this word of faith, this calling upon Christ. So if all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, we need to spend just a second talking about what is the content of this calling upon the name of the Lord? What, is that, what does that mean? And if we were to kind of look back in verses 5 through 8, um, there's this... Um, there's this bit here where Paul is talking about Moses sort of revealing in Deuteronomy um, that this righteousness um, that is based on faith um, comes, it is near to you because it's in your mouth and in your heart. So this is something that Moses says in Deuteronomy. <coughs> so he's saying this righteousness that comes by law um, Moses writes about that righteousness based on law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But then he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And then he quotes Deuteronomy saying, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So this righteousness that is by faith is not something that's way out there. 
out of reach. It's not something that you have to go ascending into the heavens to do. And it's not something that you have to descend to the depths of the earth to find and dig up. But it's there. It is in your mouth and in your heart. It's near to you. And again, as it, Paul has shown himself so much through Romans, this is nothing new. This is the same faith that has been proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. And so the way Paul sort of frames this faith by which we're made righteous, he describes it with sort of two components. And so we'll look at those two components tonight. I'm not saying that this is exclusively the components of faith. There's, you can, you know, theologians like to divide things up in as many categories as possible. And there's different ways that we can look at you know, what are the components of saving faith? But we're going to look at two of them that Paul gives in this passage um, tonight, and it is confession and belief. Confession and belief, or mouth and heart. Mouth and heart. So the first thing to consider when we look at these components of saving faith, of mouth and heart, is that you must have both. You must have both components to possess this justifying faith. <clears throat> in other words, you can't just have confession and not belief. You can't say that you're a Christian or simply say that Jesus is Lord and not truly believe it in your heart. And now when we look at this idea of, of heart, the heart is the center of the affections, right? It is who you are. It's the core of your being. So if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, with all of your heart and from the depths of who you are and you simply say it, then you're, you're missing out. You only have half the deal, right? You've got to have both the confession and the belief. And you can't simply have a belief that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus was a wise teacher, a rabbi who lived on this earth and he might have even been raised from the dead and yeah, if you want to call him the Son of God, let's call him the Son of God, but I'm not going to submit to him as Lord. And I'm not going to call him Lord. We, we can't take just one. We have to have both of these, both the confession and the belief, both the mouth and the heart. So what is the content of this confession? What do we confess with our mouth in order to be saved? And it is this, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is the the most basic Christian confession. If we were to simplify all that is Christianity and say, what is the basic confession? It's that Jesus is Lord. Now, what does it mean to be Lord? We don't use that term very much anymore. I actually saw a thing where you can buy one square foot of land in Scotland, I believe. You can buy one square foot of land, and since you own land in Scotland, you become legally a lord or a lady. And so you can literally like put on all your important documents and all this kind of stuff, Lord Clinton Wilson. You know, and it sounds very prestigious, right? No one has to know that you only own one square foot, right? So we don't really think about lordship much in our, our culture, and we don't really use that terminology, but the, the term lord or kurios in the Greek uh, was a very loaded term. It is full of significance and meaning, and it has a bit of nuance, right? The, the, there's a bit of what you would call semantic domain. 
Um, in other words, the, the word has a range of meaning, kind of like we use the word love. Like we, I love my wife, I love Hot Pockets, and you know, I love, what's something else I can love? I love my dog. Those are different types of loves, right? Same word, wide semantic range. Curious, maybe not quite so wide, <laughs> but it means something like this, master, like servant-master relationship. Could be a king, someone who is a sovereign or a authority, or it could be something like likened to sir, a title of respect um, and honor. Um, so the idea here that is we're confessing that Jesus is Lord is that, that He is in a position above us, that He is elevated in His status, that He is the master, He is the king, He's worthy of our respect and he commands our obedience, right? Because he is greater than us, because he is the king, because he is the Lord, and we are not, we owe our service uh, to him. <coughs> and so at the basic level is this, when you confess that Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is, I must obey him. I will obey him. I will follow him where he leads. But there's, a, there's an additional nuance to this word that would particularly resonate with the Greek-speaking Jew. And this is that in the Septuagint, which would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament, within the, the common Bible of the first century church, the word for uh, Lord would be this idea of Adonai. It has the same sort of semantic domain as uh, kurios in the Greek. It, it means master, king, sir, right? Adonai. Um, it's, it's used of the, the, the king would be called an Adonai. But then there's this also thing that the Septuagint did. Because of a tradition within the, the sort of Jewish culture, when the, the rabbis and the scribes or whoever would be reading from the scripture and when they would come across the name of God in the scroll, the, the, what we call the tetragrammaton, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is how we think it's pronounced. Whenever they would come across that word, they would not pronounce the word for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain, for fear of uh, misusing it, and just out of reverence for the name of God. Rather than pronouncing that name of God, they would substitute Adonai in its place. And so the Septuagint picks up on that same tradition, and everywhere you see the name of God, Yahweh, is translated Kyrios, Lord. And in most of your Bibles, probably, um, if you're in your Old Testament, you'll see sometimes Lord is in all caps, so it's capital L, then it's like all caps, uh, um, small caps, rather, uh, O-R-D, and sometimes it's just capital L, normal, lowercase, O-R-D, right? Um, that's pointing you to the difference between the word underneath the text there. So the all caps word is Yahweh, and the, the normal casing is Adonai. Um, and so when a Greek-speaking Jew in the first century would hear the word kurios, it also carries this idea that that is the Lord, Yahweh. It is our God, right? There's no other. He's, this is the God that we're talking about. 
And so there are kind of some two really main major implications that we can take from this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Once, as I said, you, you must obey him. He's the master. You must obey him. Two, there is no other Lord. He is supreme and above all. And this was a major uh, source of controversy and really the, the catalyst to the, the, the greatest persecutions that the church has faced in church history would be this proclamation of who is Lord. See, there, there was a requirement in the Roman Empire that you would offer a pinch of incense to the Roman gods for the prosperity of the emperor. And you would offer this pinch of incense and you would say, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians refused to do that because there is, they would say there is no Lord but Jesus. Instead of saying Kaiser Kyrios, they would say Iesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. There, there is no king but Christ, right? And for that, there were severe persecutions of, of Christians for a while um, there. And so, as I said, this basic confession of Jesus as Lord is significant. Let's not overlook that. The other implication is this. He is God incarnate. He is the Lord, Yahweh. And so you must not only obey him and follow him, but you must worship him. And you must worship him and him alone. So that's sort of the confession side of these two aspects of saving faith. So let's look now at the, the belief uh, what are you supposed to believe? You're supposed to believe that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This means that belief in the resurrection is essential. A belief in the resurrection is an essential doctrine. You can't have Christianity apart from a resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you call yourself a Christian or you're interested in Christianity because there's good morals, um, there's a strong uh, historic tradition that you want to be a part of or anything like that, um, but you don't believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you're missing the whole thing. You're missing the whole thing. You're missing the, the essential element. <coughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And listen, and you are still in your sins. So this doctrine of resurrection is essential. Well, first, the resurrection demonstrates the efficacy of the atonement and Christ's victory over sin and death. What do I mean by that? It says in Romans 1, when we started in this book, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection. In other words, Jesus is who he said he was. How do we know that? How do we know he wasn't just some crafty uh, rabbi who developed the following and uh, deceived a lot of people? How do we know that? Because he, raised, he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. It proves that he is who he says he is. And theologically, it also demonstrates that when he said it is finished on the cross, that it was actually finished. That, that, atone, that atonement was made once and for all. So how do you know? How do you know that your sin can be forgiven? 
because Christ was raised from the dead. The atonement is paid in full, and Jesus is who he said he was. Also, the resurrection is the first fruits of a new creation. See, Christianity is not about, you know, it just simply escaping hell, you know, a get out of hell free card. It's not about getting from this life up into heaven and floating around and escaping this life down here. The gospel, Christianity, is about how God redeems all things. That he reconciles all things to himself through his son in the cross. And he does that through uh, redeeming and overcoming the thing that broke everything. And that was sin, right? Human rebellion. Our sin broke everything. And so Jesus begins this process of making all things new by first um, and finally dealing with the thing that broke everything. By dealing with sin. And in his resurrection, he was the first fruits of a new creation. God begins making all things new in that. And so if you hope for a better future, if you hope for a day without pain or sickness, or sorrow, then you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is the first fruits. That's the down payment. That's the, the guarantee of the promise that we have that all things will be made new. It also says that God raised him from the dead. And I wanted to kind of take just a second to point this out, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And we'll see this Trinitarian work of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you might say, well, who raised God from the dead? Was it the Father? Did he raise himself? Was it the Spirit who raised him from the dead? And the Bible would say, yes. It says in this passage and many others, <clears throat> frankly, the majority of the passages, that God raised him from the dead. That the God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus says in John chapter 2, when he was talking to the Jews in the temple, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then it goes on to show us that he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is prophesying his own resurrection and he says, I will raise it up. You tear down this temple and I will raise it up. And so we see Jesus saying that he raises himself from the dead. Then also we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the spirit. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so we see this resurrection, this work of creation or new creation is a uh, triune work. It's a work of Father, Son, and Spirit. So I just wanted to share that with you when it says, and God raised him from the dead. This is consistent with all of God's purposes from beginning through eternity. Now, that's the content of this word of faith, as he calls it in verse 8, uh, that we confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We then have this promise, you will be saved. You will be saved. This promise extends to everyone. So I'm probably one of the most Calvinistic people you'll ever meet. You know, Presbyterians are laughing right now, but they can have it. The promise of salvation extends to everyone. 
to all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This promise extends to everyone. There's no need for election detection. We don't need to pull out some sort of thing that we, that we found in some, you know, Calvinist bookstore that just allows us to look at people and say, you're elect, I'm going to share the gospel with you. You don't need an election detector to say, am I elect? Am I chosen by God? Because if you're convicted of your sin and you desire Christ, if you're convicted of your sin and you desire Christ as the only sufficient source of salvation, you will be saved and you call out to him. You will be saved. The scripture says, for everyone, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And all who are saved are elect. So calling upon Christ for salvation in space and time is God's ordained means to bring about his eternal decree of election. He ordained both the end and the means. So, so if you think that you're being really smart and thinking, well, if God ordained this end and this person to be saved or me to be saved or not to be saved, then it's just going to happen. If you think that's the intelligent take, you're, you're oversimplifying things. You're actually not thinking through it. Because wouldn't it make sense that God would ordain and prescribe a certain means to bring about his purpose? If, if the potter says, I'm going to make this type of pot, he's going to set out to fold that clay a certain way, right? And God has determined in his good pleasure that the way in which he will save his people is through them hearing the gospel, them believing this gospel and calling out to Christ for mercy. That's the way he determined to fold the clay. So whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news. This is great news. Nothing disqualifies. He says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say those people who have done just a certain minimum of bad things will be saved. It doesn't say uh, people of certain ethnicities will be saved. It doesn't say people of particular theological backgrounds will be saved. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is good news. If you truly call upon Christ in faith, this would be evidence of your election. For the reprobate, those not uh, decreed to salvation, they do not desire to call upon Christ. So if you have a desire to call upon Christ for salvation, but then you just wonder, well, I don't think I'm elect. I'm not chosen by God. You're ignoring the evidence that he's put before you. Your desire for Christ is evidence that you are elect. We saw this in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If you were in your flesh, you would have hostility towards God. 
1 John 4, 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. It's God's love for us that, that brings about this love in us. So stop trying to play that game and trust the word of God that his promises are true straight up the way he has given them to us. So when we put this together with what we've seen in chapter 8 and 9 here in 10, we would see that all who call upon the name of the Lord are the called. All who call upon the name of the Lord are the called. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay, track with me real quick. Those whom he called, he also justified. How have we seen in this letter that we are justified? How is one justified by, uh, before God? Through faith and faith alone. What did we just see um, in verses 8 and 9? that that content or the components of that justifying faith is. Confession that Jesus is Lord and belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead. <coughs> and so those whom he, God calls, will call out upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's totally consistent. All who call are the called. But all the called, the eternally called, must be temporally called so that they will call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, are you tracking with me? So all the ones who God has called or, and will call to himself in line with Romans 8.30 here must be called temporally like in space and time by a human mediator or a human uh, uh, preacher so that they will come to faith and call out to Christ for salvation. And that's what we'll see in the, the next section here, verses 14 through 17. The logic is actually pretty simple if you just follow the text. Let's read that again. Verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so we have this really simple chain of logic here. That God has been pleased to use human agency in bringing about his purposes in history. We've seen this over and over and over again. He uses uh, Abraham. He uses Moses. He uses Noah. He uses David. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. The ministry of the Messiah was a, 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 a human ministry. God doesn't just zap things into existence. He does it in a lot more creative, a lot more fun, a lot more beautiful way. 
if God wanted to just make the future eternal reality that we're all going to enjoy one day, all that we ever would know, he could just speak it and it would be. But that's not the way he wants to do it. He wants to do it in a more beautiful way, a way that brings more glory to his own name. And he's sought fit, he sought fit to use us, to use human agents to bring about his purposes in history. This is completely compatible with a doctrine of God's sovereign decree. This is how he is pleased to do it. Now I'm about to give you an illustration that I feel the need to uh, go ahead and put the asterisk in front of the illustration. <laughs> this is a very uh, incredibly simplistic illustration. And I'd say this at risk of, of uh, playing into sort of a caricature of our position. But I think it is helpful illustration. Do y'all know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? You know, a Rube Goldberg machine is that thing, you know, it's like a chain reaction machine where you drop the ball and it rolls down the track and it hits this little doodad and it falls over and it goes through here and it, you know, lights a match and all these things. And at the end, there's some goal that it's set out to accomplish. And it's usually something pretty simple. Like the goal is just like to press a button, but you, you make this huge contraption to accomplish that task, right? Um, so when we think about this Rube Goldberg machine, the, the creator of this machine has determined both the outcome and the means to that outcome. The, the creator of that Rube Goldberg machine says, I want to push that button. And I want to push it by dropping this ball, by swinging this lever, by cutting this rope at this time and at this place and in this order. So the creator has predetermined the outcome, yet the ball must roll, the board must fall, and each element must perform its foreordained role to accomplish the predestined end. That all of history is an infinitely more sophisticated version of this, with living and moral agents rather than cogs in a machine, but still creatures of an infinitely wise creator nonetheless. So we're not simply puppets on strings or robots following a programming. Yet it is to be likened to pots in the hand of a potter. Our responsibility as these human moral agents is to submit to this clear teaching of scripture in wonder and worship, not to understand and explain the intricate details for who has known the mind of the Lord. And so this is the world and we live. It is a display of the infinite brilliance of God. And he's been so kind to call us into enjoyment of his design. And for that, we should be thankful. And so God ordains the outcome and the means to that outcome. So if sinners will be saved, then the gospel must be preached, right? How will they call on him if they have not believed? And how will they believe in someone they've never heard of? And how will they hear without someone preaching? You see? So what we can see for this is that preaching the gospel is necessary. 
It's necessary. It's that ball rolling down that track. If the ball doesn't roll, we don't reach the outcome. Preaching the gospel is necessary. You may have heard the phrase, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Right? It's, there's debate about who originally said that, so I'm not going to attribute it to anyone. Someone said it. Lots of people say it. But it's not really true. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Well, what does it mean to preach? What does it mean to preach? Uh, the word preach there is keruso, which means to proclaim, to herald. You're not very much of a herald or a proclaimer if you don't use words. Right? The whole idea of preaching is the communication of a message. And it's a particular type of message. It's a, it's a good news. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that, that you have to deal with. It's news that you have to deal with, right? It's saying, hey, there's a new king in town. Just, just letting you know. And he has certain demands for your life. And he's a good king. And he's called me here to proclaim this message to you, to preach this message to you. And so I get, you know, what the, the quote, the famous quote is saying, that we should live in a way that's consistent with our profession, right? I'm totally for that. Like if we, if we preach a message of grace, grace, yet we constantly hold grudges against people, then we're being hypocrites. We aren't living in line with our confession. But we do need to have uh, this straight in our minds that preaching the gospel requires words. It requires proclaiming a message. So that means that when you ha have a relationship with a classmate or a friend or a family member and you're trying to show them the gospel by your works and your good works and show them Christ, there's going to come a point where you eventually have to open your mouth. You're eventually going to have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that he's not just your Lord, but he is Lord, right? You, you, you've probably heard this says, I want you to, to I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Would you make Jesus the Lord of your life tonight? You know, well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the Lord of your life. You're required to acknowledge his Lordship, to submit to it, to love it, to glorify him in light of it. You don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. And you, he's your Lord. And he can be your Lord in a way that brings life and peace and forgiveness of sins. Or he can be your Lord in judgment. That choice is yours. That choice is yours. Would you seek him for his mercy? Or would you turn from him and reject him and receive his wrath? But see, we can't really explain all that with just our actions. We have to use words. You can show your friend Jesus all day long by how you treat them. You can be a nice person to them. And they can really appreciate your niceness. And, and they might even realize that Jesus has something to do with your niceness. And they can still die in their sins and go to hell with a really nice friend. They must hear about their sin 
and they must hear about the, the Savior for their sin, the one who's the substitute for sinners, the one who uh, bears sin and calls us to repent of our sin and believe in him and follow him, right? That requires words. You have to open your mouth. <laughs> so preaching the gospel is necessary. Preaching the gospel is also beautiful. It's beautiful. Verse 15 is a, actually a quotation of Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, when's the last time someone told you you had pretty feet? I wish Kayla was in here because I always tell her I have pretty feet. And she just thinks I'm gross. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What's that about? Got some foot model in here? No. This is the imagery of a, of a messenger on the horizon running toward a battle-wearied city with good news of victory. It's the watchman up on the city walls looking into the distance. There's a, there's a battle that is decisive out there somewhere. And whatever happens on that battlefield is going to drastically change our life one way or the other. And I'm waiting for that messenger to cross the horizon. And then I see him coming and he's running and he has good news. That's a beautiful sight. Those are beautiful feet right there. The feet are calloused and they're kicking up dust, but it is a beautiful sight. I'm going to read you the whole passage here from Isaiah. 52 verses 7 through 10. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's a beautiful picture. All the nations of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And guys, we are those messengers. We are the ones running to all the nations and say, behold your God. You can be saved. We go as those sent to preach the good news and we run and we take this message of salvation through Christ and Christ alone to every creature under the sky. So it's a beautiful message. It's a beautiful gospel. It's a beautiful thing to do to preach the gospel. It's beautiful, catch this, it's beautiful to the weary. It's, it's beautiful to the one on the city walls watching and waiting and saying it's life or death. And you see the message of life. It's, it's beautiful to the battle-wearied, but it is abominable to the proud. It's abominable to, to those who need no salvation. Jesus says it's the sick who need a physician. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let me just pause right there. <coughs> Christ leads us in triumphal procession. What is that? That is the king or the, the hero leading his people uh, in a victory march. Uh, 
It's a triumphal procession. Jesus is doing that. He's leading us in this victory march across and through the nations, and it spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other, a fragrance from life to life. So what he's saying is, is we, we go and we spread this aroma of Christ to God everywhere we go. And to some people, it's a fragrance of life. And to some people, it smells like death. But we spread that fragrance to both groups of people, to those who uh, are being saved and those who are perishing. Which leads us to the, the last little point here about preaching the gospel is that ultimately the preaching the gospel is about glorifying God. It's about glorifying God. Gospel preaching should always be God-centered and not man-centered. Gospel preaching should always be God-centered and not man-centered. And if you struggle to have the courage to share the gospel with your friends or any anyone for that matter. Maybe it's because you've only ever been motivated to evangelize by guilt. I know I should be doing this. Or maybe it's you've only ever been motivated through a, a type of compassion where you realize hey, there's people, there are tons of people on this campus right now who are headed to hell. They're perishing. Go have compassion on them. Send the message of the gospel to them. If that's the only motivation you have for sharing the gospel, for preaching the gospel, many of us will never share the gospel. But if your primary motivation in sharing the gospel is because you're blown away by the glory of God and you want this knowledge of God to be spread everywhere, so that he receives glory, I would argue that you're going to have more boldness. You're going to have more courage. And then I would also or argue that your compassion would grow. Right? That, I, that's true of my life. Maybe it's not true for you, but it's true for me. I had no desire, very little desire. I guess I'm not a very compassionate person. I mean, I get it. That is sad. But in my hardness of heart, that's not the best motivator for me. But when I was captivated by the glory of God, that this message of the gospel is amazing, it's powerful, and I want other people not just to believe it. Yeah, I want them to believe it, but I want them to hear it so that God gets glory. No matter how they respond to it, right? No matter how they respond to it. Like, you know, uh, great works of art are beautiful, no matter if someone likes it or not. The gospel is beautiful. It's glorifying to God, no matter if people receive it or they don't receive it, because it's the message of Christ. And so preaching the gospel should always be about glorifying God. And so I, I hope I can at least model, and I'm trying to get better at that myself as a preacher, is putting God at the center. And my goal in every single message and every single time I preach is for you to walk away worshiping God. Not so much that you go away and have a list of things to do, which sometimes that's appropriate to go away and say, here's some things I need to do in my life. 
but my main objective is for you to walk away going, wow, God is amazing. Because until you can say that, you will have no hope in any of the other stuff. So preaching the gospel is about glorifying God. Preaching the gospel is a means through which God effectually calls his elect, and it is also the means by which he gives justifying faith to those whom he calls. And this will be our last point. The means of grace as the means of faith. The means of grace as the means of faith. Verse 17 says, For faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. <coughs> this brings us all the way back around, full circle, to the question of how is one righteous before God? As I said earlier, the argument throughout this letter has been by faith and faith alone. So how does one acquire that justifying faith? Through hearing the word of Christ. What is, what is the way that that is accomplished in your life and in anyone's life? It's through hearing the word of Christ and his gospel. In complete grace, God provides the necessary faith to respond to and obey the gospel through the hearing of that very gospel. And it's likened to the illustration a few weeks ago about waking up. The call to wake up contains what is necessary to bring about the desired response. By God's grace, the necessary faith to respond and to obey the gospel comes through the hearing of that gospel. So you might say, I, I, this, this person, they have a hard heart. They don't believe at all. So why would I, I, they don't even believe that the Bible is God's word. So how am I going to share the gospel with them? The gospel is the very means by which God gives this faith. Right? So lean into it all the more. Because this is the means by which God gives it. It was in the hearing of the gospel of Christ that the Jews in, at Pentecost in Acts uh, 2 were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? These are the cats that crucified Jesus. Do you think you wanted to go say, hey, I, I guarantee you, you've never had a more awkward gospel conversation than saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, right? This is what Peter does at Pentecost. He says, you crucified him. This is the Jesus that God has made Lord in Christ. You crucified him. And through the preaching of that gospel, they go, they're cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? Right? It's faith comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. And, and here's what I hope to be an encouragement to you. This doesn't stop at conversion. This doesn't stop at conversion. The word of God, the word of Christ, this gospel is always a strengthener of faith. So if you feel like your faith is weak and could be fortified, go to the word of Christ. Put yourself under the word. Discipline yourself and go to the word. When you don't feel like going to the Word, go to the Word. Because in doing it, there's, there's been so many times that, that I've not felt like reading the Bible or really doing any of that kind of stuff. And when I go to it, and I've read it, I walk away going, wow, 
That was so good. I needed that, right? Because what I was lacking in that moment was not just motivation. I was lacking faith. I was lacking faith. And God provides it richly through the word of Christ. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need the word of God more than you need bread. It nourishes you and sustains your faith. So if your faith is weak, go to the word of Christ. Put yourself under the gospel. Never, never outgrow the gospel. Never feel like, like, hey, I figured out this justification by faith. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Now I want to graduate into the big boy stuff. What you will learn is as you graduate to the big boy stuff in theology, it's only a going deeper into who Christ is. It's only going further and further into who Jesus is and what he has done in the gospel. If you're doing it right. So if your big boy theology takes you away from Christ, then it's not Christian theology. It's leading you away from Christ. Always and ever go deeper and deeper into Christ. So we'll close with four points of application. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, hear the word of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. The scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Call upon the name of the Lord and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Take that step of making that confession with your mouth in order to follow Christ. Next, if you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, and all that means, but you have never confessed him as Lord with your mouth and have, followed, and have not followed through with baptism. Let's talk about that. Historically, baptism is seen as that public profession of Christ, uh, of faith. It's proclaiming Christ as Lord. So baptism is a way in which we do that as Christians. And if you've not been baptized, but you believe in Jesus, um, let's, let's set up a time to talk about that and what's preventing you from be ba being baptized. That pro public profession of faith, as we've seen, is, is vital. It's not optional in the Christian life. And if you have been saved, go from here preaching the gospel. Kick up the dust. Wear calluses on your feet and preach the good news of the Savior to every creature in your path. And finally, love the gospel. Study it to the depths and give God all the glory for the great things he has done in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you provide all that we need in Christ. You have called us to yourself through the gospel of your son by your spirit. You've called us to respond in faith. And you've even provided that. God, forgive us when we lack faith, when we doubt your goodness, when we doubt your ability to see through on your promises in light of all that you have already done for us. God, forgive us for where we have been faithless in preaching the gospel, where we have been cowards and not willing to share Christ, to preach Christ, to 
unbelievers in our lives for fear of many different things. And God, would you take away that shame and that guilt? Will we find that faithful, faithlessness atoned for in the blood of your Son? And may we leave from here with new courage and a new zeal to make your glory known in the gospel, that you would be the center of our affections, that, that we would uh, confess Jesus as Lord and that we would believe in our heart with all that we are, that, that you raised him from the dead and that he is totally who he said he is for us and for all. And we pray that you would save many on this campus. God, forgive us for looking out across this campus from day to day and just seeing hopelessness and being overwhelmed by the darkness, overwhelmed by the rebellion. And God, would we be reminded that this is a new creation, that Christ is the first fruits of a new creation and that everyone who simply calls upon his name will be saved. And would we be faithful to preach him, to proclaim and herald the good news, no matter how people respond to it and allow you to be the potter and us to be the clay and for you to receive all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.